And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. Hey, everybody. Oh, it's hard work being this good. I was like, ow. You sound like a, a big choo-choo train. We join the Jim Huber Show, already in progress. Raising boys the Zeller way. Luke, Tyler, and Cody, and Stephen Laurie Zeller are guests today. Tell us about the Hatchet House. What what a great name for a basketball gymnasium. It sounds like a place where Jimmy would have played because this guy... Hey, I'm a defender. i got to shove people down. Yeah. Talk about the Hatchet House. The Hatchets are the, um, the mascot for Washington. George Washington chopping down the cherry tree with a hatchet. Um, so Washington became the Hatchets. Um, it's interesting to note their previous nickname before the hatchet um the basketball team used to before they would ride a bus to the game they would borrow cars from the mortuary and um so they were called the undertakers <laughs> oh, gosh. are you kidding Good me they're going to play there the undertakers oh, yeah. There's some trivia for you, but they were the Washington Undertakers. Well, the hatchet was a step up. Yeah. Yeah. You think about the hatchet house, it seats 7,000 people, and there's only a town of 12,000. You know, that just shows Hoosier hysteria and the enthusiasm that that they have for the teams. And the lower bowl, um, it's like arena-style seating, but the lower bowl seats about 5,000. And on a typical uh, weeknight or, um, you know, conference game, they would get that bowl pretty well filled. And then Washington was fortunate enough to host um, the first two rounds of tournaments, usually like sectionals and regionals. And we would pull out the upper bleachers, and then we could get 7,000. Wow. And when the boys were playing, um, we would uh, they would get it filled. And it's just a, an amazing place to watch a ball game. This chapter right here, I'm telling you, I cried a couple times. Uh, I was telling Steve, like, ESPN needs to do a 30 for 30 special on this chapter. And if you can start, first of all, on the first run that you had with Luke, and what got me is the bus and holding hands on the bus with the bus driver and how that came full circle. If you can kind of tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, when when we moved to Washington, Luke was um, a first grader. And he was, um, of course, tall, but he was shy. And every day I would take Luke, I would walk him out to the end of the driveway. We would wait for the bus to come along. And the school bus driver um, was a lady that was just um, great personality, big heart, very loving. And Luke would be afraid to get on the school bus. So she would put the bus in park and walk down the two steps, and she would take his hand, and she would lead him up the steps of the bus. And then he would find a seat, and he would be off to school. And so fast forward to when Luke is um, in high school. I now work at the athletic office at the high school, and um, our athletic director was also the head boys basketball coach. And I meet his wife, and it is Luke's old bus driver. Um, her name is Wilda. So Wilda and I became very good friends just um, you know, through Luke playing and her husband um, coaching. Yeah, Luke's senior year, she was battling cancer, and, and it was a very difficult time for Coach. Um, the the bright spot in his life at that time was the basketball team. We ended up, of course, winning state that year. Wilda would pass away in September from 
losing her battle to cancer. But at this banquet in May, they went to take the picture, and um, Luke reached down and grabbed Wilda's hand. And it had kind of been like it had gone full circle Mm -hmm. from the time Luke was a first grader to his senior year in high school. They were still holding hands. And even that, Luke, I know uh, reading through the book, it talked about the high school coach at the time. They were talking about maybe not renewing his contract. And Luke, like, wrote a letter in support of him to uh, ask for them to retain him. Is that true? Luke's junior year, they were talking about not renewing him. So it would have been for the senior year that they ended up winning the state. They weren't going to renew it. Um, And Luke did write a a letter to the school board saying that uh, he wanted Coach Homer to be coaching him. That had to be impressive as a parent, seeing your son standing up for something that he believed in. It did, because so many times now you hear about players that get mad at coaches and then parents that try to, to get them fired, where you don't hear many that, I mean, obviously Coach Homer was had a lot of parents, and we were, we were kind of isolated from that because of the, the way we live our lives. We weren't hearing all the negatives um, about Coach Homer and all the things they wanted as far as getting rid of him, but uh, Luke was, and just having that conversation with him, um, he asked for advice on what to do and how to do it, and we just kind of gave him uh, the suggestions, and then he, he went with it. Because of that, they make the run, and they get to the final game, the championship game, and you got to take us down to the, the shot. In the fourth quarter of the game, they're playing Plymouth, um, coached by Coach Edison, who is a Hall of Fame coach. He just had a great team. There was 1.8 seconds left, and we're now down by one. So immediately we call timeout. We have to go the length of the court. And uh, the first timeout, uh, Coach Omer sends the first timeout at the scorer's table, trying to get more time on the clock. And... He wasn't successful, so it's still 1.8 seconds. We break huddle, and we have no plan, and we have no timeouts left. And so we walked back out on the court and set up, and fortunately, um, Coach Edison called the timeout after he saw how we were set up. When Coach called that timeout, it tremendously helped us because we didn't have a game plan going in. Luke said maybe he's heard... He's watched the movie Hoosiers too many times, but he said, uh, just, Coach, just give me the ball and I'll score. They run the picket fence. Don't get caught watching the paint dry. Yeah. yeah. But Luke said he, he asked for the ball because Luke knew that he was going to go on and play in college, and he wanted it on his shoulders if they would lose because um, he wanted to take it rather than his teammates because he didn't want anybody to live with that the rest of their life. Um, in our crazy little, you know, mm-hmm. basketball town. Like Shooter in the movie, remember? It was, it was in, <laughs> and, drinking it was in and out, and then Shooter's <laughs> life just went down the toilet. So. <laughs> we had a, a player throw an inbound pass, soccer style, and this, this teammate was a state soccer um, goalie. Last second instructions from Coach Edison for Plymouth and the same from Dave Omer for Washington. Here we go. Justin Smith, he's got to find Luke Zeller. Luke Zeller at midcourt. Puts it up at the buzzer.
that moment, not just the shot that was so, you know, just exciting for you, but seeing how your son reacted to it. He, uh, right away after he hit the shot, he, he pointed up and, and gave the glory to somebody other than himself. As his teammate, all huddled around him. And uh, to make it even more enjoyable for us as parents, we've got a picture in our our family room at home where Luke is pointing up um, the guy that threw him the pass, the soccer goalie, he's actually hugging him around his waist. And then there's a freshman, a little Tyler Zeller in the background <laughs> that is coming up on him to be able to give him, not real sure, you know, typical freshman, not real sure what he's going to do or how he's going to do it, but you can see that He's excited to be in that whole thing. <laughs> and that's kind of in our society. It's so important to kind of get kids to realize it's not about them, right? And you look at, you look at the traditions that uh, North Carolina had, you know, the pointing at the guy that threw them the assist, and they continue it today. And uh, John Wooden always talked about having the guy wink at him, which isn't quite as obvious as the point. So Dean Smith put the point in. And, uh, you know, Roy Williams continues it. And you still see it today in, in certain players. And they're usually the unselfish players that are there. They're pointing at the guy that got them the good shot because it's a team game. And it's like life, it's a team game. Steve, you bring up John Wooden. So he hits the shot. Uh, Luke hits the shot, the miracle shot. He's a celebrity in Indiana. You go to the McDonald's game and he's just another player. But... A neat thing happens. You guys have an encounter with John Wooden. Talk about the man and what your impression was. Uh, it was unbelievable. That morning, we get up early, and um, Tyler and Cody and I go down to the lobby to be able to get some breakfast. But we finish up, and just as we're finishing up, Cody goes, isn't that somebody famous behind you? <laughs> and you turn around, and it was, it was Coach Wooden. So I get up and I walk out, and as I'm walking out, Coach Wooden stops the two boys. He stops the two boys and he quizzes them on their grades. He quizzes them on um, what kind of boys they are. Do they like basketball? Do they like other sports? And just just talking to him, got their names, and they, he connected it with Luke. Being an All-American, he was able to, to figure it out, and just, just as sharp as a tack. A few days later, we're sitting in the uh, lobby. We walk into the lobby from the outside, and Coach Wooden's signing autographs. And there's a line of people waiting for an autograph. And we walk in, and all of a sudden, we hear Coach Wooden go, Cody, come here. So he calls him over there, and he says, Cody, I want you to stand right here in front of the table. So we're all kind of looking around like, okay, why is he doing this? What's going on? And it's about 10 minutes, and he's chit-chatting a little bit with Cody, but mainly he's just having him stand there. And after about 10 minutes, he says, Cody, I need to have you stand, slide over just a little bit. The sun's hitting my paper. <laughs> he was John Wooden's sun visor. That's yeah. awesome. John, and it's something that Cody will never forget. And then later on in that same uh, time that we were there, Coach Wooden was talking to uh, Coach Omer, which he was there as well. He had come up there the, the next day. He was sitting there talking to him, and that's one of the things he said to him was that he said, so you just won a state championship, Coach. And Coach Omer says, yeah. And Coach Wooden goes, 
you know, I'd give up two of my national championships <laughs> for one Indiana state championship ring. I had a coach that uh, that I played for, and he was at the Final Four, and John Wooden, this was when he was retired. His wife had passed away, and he was signing his Pyramid of Success, um, signing him, giving them away, and he ran out of them. And the coach, he asked if he could get one of them. And he said, I'll tell you, I'm out of them, but here's what I'll do. Let, give me where you're staying at. And he wrote down the hotel, the room number and everything. He said, I'll get one to you. And he said the next day, it was like 8.30 in the morning, knock on the door. He goes, the coach opens it up and looks. There's John Wooden in a suit and tie that has the pyramid of success signed. And he says, Coach Turner, here you go. And that shows you how much of a high character guy he was. I can't imagine how he felt when he opened the door. And- well, and also he was in his he was in his skippies, and he wasn't really he wasn't dressed apart, so he was kind of like, oh my god, wait, there's John Wooden in a suit and tie. I'm seeing what a picture. And Fred, Fred, bless his heart, he looks just like Willard Scott, the weatherman, in skivvies. So there's a mental yeah. picture that will haunt you forever. So so let's one one of the people that really caught me in the book, one of the characters that caught me in the book was uh, Tyler's fellow post player, Seth Coy. The best part about Seth was he loved life. He loved, he was so much fun to be around, and you just loved working with a kid that would work as hard as he did, but yet when you got all done, he would have some joke to tell you, some some way to make you laugh when you got all done. And In eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade, but especially eighth grade, I remember him and Tyler would actually battle in the post and they would actually bloody each other and be mad at each other. And then they'd walk off the court and be best of friends. And uh, he ended up just going on and having a great high school career to the point where, you know, he went from somebody that couldn't even hardly play basketball to a kid that got a Division One scholarship. He had some health issues, right? I mean, Seth had a lot of health issues. Like, didn't his teeth fall out? He he had all the characteristics of having Marfan syndrome. Right. But he did not have it. Um, so they always, you know, were looking and testing for um, defects in his heart, enlarged heart, that kind of thing. He was just put together very different. There was one time in um, in high school, and he had a fender bender, and he knocked out a couple of his front teeth. And I was like, Seth, what are you going to do? Because I knew financially this was going to be a problem for them to get that fixed. And he said, oh, it's fine. They'll grow back. <laughs> and I'm like, but you're a teenager, and these are your front teeth. He was on his fourth set of teeth. He was uh, in high school. They called he and Tyler the Twin Towers. He ended up. We had to stretch. We got a size 21. That was the best Adidas could do. Wow. It became a 21 2. Got skis. We had to stretch, stretch that to get it because he wore size 22. His knees were just humongous. Um, his joints, all of his joints were, were bigger than normal, but his knees were really big. He was, he was definitely in pain um, a lot of the times when he played. You, you don't give up on kids. You never know what they're going to become. It's not where they're at. It's where they're heading. And too many people give up on kids when they're, when they're young. But the thing that hit me is then he dies in a car accident, and the community comes together during that time and, and fills the, the hatchet house. And if you can kind of tell us a little bit about that. Just 
tremendously shocking and such a sad loss. And um, they ended up having his ceremony at the Hatchet House. A testament to Seth is that um, the Hatchet House had such a variety of people. You know, there were young and old and rich and poor and people that, you know, in our small community, um, people came that I'd never seen before living there, you know, almost 20 years. You know, when Tyler and Seth were seniors, Tyler had already um, announced that he was going to go to North Carolina and play for Roy Williams. So when they when they went to ball games, you know, maybe we're at an away venue, and you know, a few people would ask for Tyler's autograph because they felt like, um, you know, maybe he was going to have a good future. But Seth, after ball games, he would have kids come up to him and hang on him like a tree and. You know, like, he would play with kids, run around the gym with them. And, like, he was just the entertainment. And um, he was such a popular kid and just influenced so many people in, in such a great way. Chapter 9 in your book, Let Them Go and Enjoy the Ride. Every parent in America needs to read that chapter. So Luke goes to Notre Dame. McDonald's All-American is not playing. How do you handle that? As a parent... My dad gave me very little advice raising 12 of us, but one advice he did give us was that um, you better have their respect, meaning your kids. You better have your kids' respect by the time they're five. Otherwise, you're going to pay for it when they're teenagers. And when they turn 18 and leave home, then they can become your friends because you've done such a good job. They become either men or women, and they, they are your friends at that point. And that's the way we looked at it. We're there to support them. We're there to help them. But they've got to be men, and, and they had to make their decisions. So Luke having trouble at Notre Dame was a challenge for Lori and I, but obviously a bigger challenge for him. And we uh, ended up just making him make those decisions as he worked his way through and knowing what his goals were and, and what he was after as far as playing in the NBA. He had a lot of uh, struggles that he went through, and uh, to be honest with you, we did a lot of praying for him. Uh, that's about all we could do for him. And then the little advice we gave him was, you've got to talk it over with the coach. You've got to work through it yourself, Luke. How did you do that as parents? Because so, we get so emotional with our children, and, and people lose their minds. Luke called us. He was all excited because he had played a great game at DePaul. It was at the end of the game, and he had played really well, and, and Coach had told him, you're going to start the next game. So Lori and I, I took off work, and we drove up to uh, Notre Dame, which is a five-hour drive on a Wednesday night. And we got up there and played 30 seconds wow. of that game. Mm. And we were very supportive after the, the game. And uh, we hugged the kid, told him we loved him, told him we were proud of him, and then we headed home. And it was a long ride home. We, the first uh, the first three hours of that trip was us just being mad, and then the last two hours was us just being totally quiet. So uh, not much sleep that night. Went to work the next day and then ended up just uh, calling Luke after we had time to think about it, calling Luke and saying, Luke, you really need to go in and talk to Coach. That was one of the first times we said, you, you really need to go in and just talk to him. What's your advice for parents that want to pick up the phone and call the coaches? You know, once you send them to college, 
you are entrusting that college and that coach with them, it's no longer where the parents are calling a college coach and telling them, you know, that you think your kid should be playing more. That's not your job. Um, you know, they're adults, and, you know, at that point, um, the parent should be out of the of that relationship because, um, you know, your your child is in college, and, and it's time for your child to step up and make those um uh, those phone calls or or go in and talk to coach. In high school then, how would you deal with it where if they were having challenges with their high school coach, how would you do that? The first thing is is you tell them that they need to talk to coach and they say, well, yeah, I did and I got no results. Nothing happened or he said this or he said that. Then, um, and and we did this with with Coach Omer where we would actually go in and, and Luke and I would sit down, but Luke had to do all the talking. And I'll tell you what, Coach Omer appreciated that more than anything else. Luke was struggling with, he wanted to shoot outside, and Coach Omer told him he had to be a post player. I mean, he was six foot 11. Coach Omer unrealistically asked him to be a post player instead of. <laughs> Who would have thought? Had right. PG. Stand by that basket. That was really the discussion we had. And, you know, in all honesty, I agreed with Coach Omer. But I had to have Luke get through that whole thing. And it all worked out great because Coach Omer did start using him as a three-point as well as a inside post player. When the whole thing was over, it wasn't Dad said this or Dad said that. It was Luke had the conversation and Luke had ownership in it. In the book, you kind of transition out of the high school stage and you start talking about now it becomes recruiting and now it becomes finding the best fit you know, for your child. Um, but allowing your child to navigate through that, and that's kind of a hard process for parents and kids. Can you le- let us know like, what you learned through the recruiting process and what's the best way that parents and kids should go through it today? I think for parents, um, you know, we were fortunate that we got to go through it more than once. You know, like our big lesson from that was to control the process and don't let the process control you. How's a parent, would they go about controlling it? What are things that they would do? Parents talk about getting letters. You know, my kid got you know, four or five letters in the, in the mail, and they're all excited about that. And my first question to them was, well, did you call any of them? Are you interested enough that you called the coaches? They go, oh, well, I'm, well, we don't do that. I, 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 we don't call anybody. That would be – and that's the way we felt on the first one, you know, you you don't know whether you should call or whether you shouldn't call. I would strongly advise if, if you're interested in that college and they're interested in you, they sent you a letter, call them, and uh, you'll be amazed. Just call and talk to the athletic department and say, I'd like to speak to a coach. I've got a kid that um, a letter was sent to by your school, and uh, start the process. Then also go do unofficial visits. And one of the things that we used – once again, thinking about using the process um, rather than, than letting the process use you, we, we used it. Lori and I used that to make the boys realize that um, they've got to prepare for meetings. They've got to do their homework. And then when they get there, they have to perform. They, to this day, will tell you that it's helped them as far as being able to know how to read people and being able to know how to control that first encounter with another person rather than allowing that person to control them. 
Steve, can I go back real quick, though? When you talk about you made them do homework and prepare, what, 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 what was the homework in the preparation? Yeah. Names is the number one thing. Um, so important to, to know the names. And with the website the way it is, you can get on the website and figure out who the coaches are and, and what they do and, and their jobs. Then think about questions to ask. We, we emphasize to them, don't just go and meet with the athletic department. Go and meet with the dean of, and all of them were in business, wanted to get into the business um, college. So we asked them to meet with the, the dean of, of business and told them to prepare for those by figuring out what they really wanted to do. And then write things down. Um, as somebody's talking to you, one of the biggest compliments I've always been taught, one of the biggest compliments you can give somebody is if they say something and you write it down. The boys did that. They'd have, you know, paper and pen in hand. What kind of questions would they ask the coaches or what would you ask the coaches as a parents? What kind of questions would you suggest? That was one thing that we tried not to do. We tried not to do, tried not to, uh, ask questions. Um, the parents, Lori and I asking questions, we made the boys ask questions. And, and one of the first questions we always ask them is, is how would you use them? So how would you use me, coach, would be a question that would be asked. And then when they got done asking that, usually the second question was, how long do you plan on being here, coach? You know, and all of them, of course, would say they're going to be there four years or they're going to be there committed. And, and uh, we actually had one incident where one coach told them that, told uh, one of our boys to be vague, <laughs> told one of our boys that he would be there for four years, the whole time he'd be there, and he ended up resigning on the flight home because they were doing Washington. <laughs> That's hard to look him in the eye doing oh, that. Oh, man. Uh, that'd be a tough deal to do. That's crazy. Did uh, Talk about Tom Crean's reaction when, when Cody committed to uh, go play for him. One thing we made our boys always do was the school that they were not going to attend, we made them call that coach and thank them for recruiting them and to tell them that, you know, they they appreciated it, that they were not going to attend their school. And so Cody had come home that day at lunch to make those phone calls, and he had called uh, Roy Williams at North Carolina, and he had called Brad Stevens at Butler, and he called Coach Cream, and um, he said, Coach, today I'm going to make my announcement. I have to call two two schools and Unfortunately, I have to tell them that I'm not going to attend their college. There was just silence on the other end. And Cody said, but I've already made those phone calls, so I'm just calling to tell you that I'm going to IU. And there was just silence on the other line. And we hear what seems to be maybe crying on the other end. (laughs) you know, he's, and Cody's like, is he crying? There's <laughs> <laughs> no crying in basketball or baseball. <laughs> so uh, what type of cry was it? Was it like a little faint? Like, oh, oh, was it like that? Was it big? Was it, oh, oh, oh. What, describe the cry of cream. Um, kind of just, it was kind of just a little whimpering type, like. <laughs> it's a doggish whimper. <laughs> did he ask him, did he say, coach, are you crying? Um, I think he did, and, and then Coach Crean said, the next time I cry from you is going to be when we win the national championship. So as a parent, do you ask your son or daughter questions? 
do you sit down with them and go over the pros and cons of the school and help kind of go through the process with them? With the first one, we did all of the above. And in all honesty, we wore the poor kid out. Once again, Luke being our pioneer. But you've got to, as a parent, you've just got to put them in the, at the college, let them do the research, let them be there, let them feel the atmosphere. And then all three of them, it was more of a feel than anything else, that they, they just felt right being there. And as a parent, that's what you want. You want the, your child to, to feel right where they're at rather than be pushed into it. So with the second two, we uh, listened a lot, um, let them use us. And to the point where Cody, like Lori explained earlier, he couldn't even go out in the community without somebody offering advice on where he needed to go to college. So we didn't talk about it in the home. It was kind of a safe place for him. And that just worked the best for him. With Tyler, he really felt like we wanted, Lori and I wanted him to go to IU. Lori wasn't real excited as far as him going all the way to North Carolina and her letting go was was a challenge. And so Tyler was torn, but he loved North Carolina. He he flew out because I had had heart surgery. He flew out on his own. He spent uh, the weekend there and then came back, and you could just tell by the smile on his face that's where he wanted to go. I ended up going into his room because he was agonizing so much over it. I went into his room, and I told him that, you know, Tyler, I really think you need, and we had never offered any advice at all. And so hitting him between the eyes with this just kind of stunned him, and that's what I hoped the effect I had on him was, I said, Tyler, you need to go to IU. The state of Indiana is going to love you. You need to go there. And the, ma- the more I talked, the madder he got. And uh, he walked out of the room and went down and, and told Lori that, that I wanted him to go to IU, and I was forcing him into it. And Lori says, well, where do you want to go? Which he wouldn't answer up that point. He goes, I want to go to North Carolina. And I was standing right behind him, and I said, well, Tyler, that's where you need to go. That's what I think, too, as you talk about, Steve, is there's parents, handlers now today, coaches, People have hidden agendas, and sometimes they influence kids to go to places that they shouldn't go to. We've told so many of the athletes that we work with now, it will end up being a feel because so many of the colleges will fit all the mental criteria that you're looking for. They'll have the teammates, the coaches, the, the academics that you want, but you've got to feel right there because you're going to spend – four years, up to four years of your life at that college. Steve, tell me this now. There's rumors about you that you would go to schools and talk to the president of the university. Is that true? (laughs) Come on now. Let's get it out, because they said you would go in and hammer the president and make sure it's the right place. We uh, talked to the Butler president. We talked to the IU president. We talked to the Notre Dame president. So, yes, we did do that. And then with uh, Tyler... Tyler just wanted to talk to the business deans, so we ended up talking to the business deans, and Cody wanted to go to football games at the schools. Right. And we went to several football games at the schools. So, like I said, let the system, you got to use the system rather than letting the system use you. So at the end of the book, you get in and talk about, Steve, that you have heart surgery. 
and you almost die. Did it change you as an individual? I went in for surgery and had a mechanical valve put in on a Monday morning. It's painful when they cut open your chest and right down the sternum, they take a saw and just cut that bone right in two. Oh my God. And then they pry, pry your ribs open and go in and take out the heart and lay it to the side because they've stopped it from beating while they put you on a machine and have that machine be your heart. And I'll never forget it. It's one of those times when I was waking up. You know how you are when you wake up, you've got the cobwebs in your mind. <laughs> yeah, I wonder where you're at. Yeah. And I could hear a voice, a deep voice talking over me. And as I listen to the words, I'm, I'm, he's asking God to touch me with his healing hand. And as I open my eyes, I look over in that six foot 11 frame, was down on his knees his elbows on the side of my bed, his hands cupped in prayer with his head on his hands, his eyes closed, talking to God, praying for me. As a father, one, it made me very proud, and two, it made me very happy that I did all the things that I did with that kid when he was younger so that he was there to reward me with that later. And I knew that I had been the kind of father that was around to be able to give him the character, to be able to have him do that. There's a part in the book where Joseph had an aneurysm, your dad, and he came back and was not the dad that you remembered as he was recovering. And, and you talked about the first time that you really prayed in your life. You'd gone to church and prayed, but this was the first time that you really talked to God. I was just asked this week what was the most courageous thing I did, and, and in all honesty, that, that really um, came to mind first because I really believe that being cur courageous is connected with fear. And I was scared to death I was going to lose my dad. And being able to get down on my hands and knees on that floor of our upstairs farmhouse with my three brothers laying in bed and being worried that they were going to wake up and make fun of me just because I, that's the way we did things back then. And being able to go to the middle of the room and have a moment where I was talking to God. And it's something that helped me. It was kind of a just a stepping stone to my relationship with God. You know, it's it's an amazing book. And I'm telling you, from coaches to parents to people out there, they should read this book. Um, it's made an impact on my life. And I love how you talk about that we as parents have a great responsibility in the world, um, you know, as raising our children, but we have an opportunity to give something great to the world, give a gift. And it's amazing what you've done with your children, how you raised them, how they turned out today, um, the ministry it's created with your camps, the things that you're giving back. Um, I know for me reading the book, I've learned a lot. And there's a lot that I'm going to use to implement with raising my children. Um, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. That means a lot. It, our, our intention with writing the book is that it could be kind of a guide for parents 
we're not perfect parents, but we are very blessed. And there's a few things we learned along the way. And and I got to share with you guys. Uh, Jim teared up when he was. I'm an emotional kind of guy. When he went through I, that speech, it was like my my, son, my two sons. I'm looking over here, and it's Tom Crean. He's breaking down over here. So you really moved. And I, and I, I, I won't be someone to shy away from it. I did get emotional thinking about. Raising my two children, one three, one three months old. Hold on, here he goes again. No, I'm serious. And it's like when reading that, you know, you do, you know, you have a responsibility as a parent. Right now, Lori wants to grab Jim and go, Jim, it's okay. Can you hold my hand, Lori, and walk me up the stairs, and then uh, I'll walk you back down, okay? It's going to be okay, Jimmy. Hey, you guys were great. Thank you. Have a Merry Christmas. You have a Merry Christmas, too. This is the Jim Huber Project Podcast. Whatever. I was coaching the last two minutes. I took them right down to the wire. I run the picket fence on them, and I, I started bawling. And they, they bring the white coats in here, and they, they put a jacket on me. I was feeling so good, I didn't even mind.